transhumanism gives us an opportunity as a church to re-engage these questions of what is the meaning of suffering. Mm. Uh, because on the, on the one hand, we, we do as Christians seek to eliminate suffering because we serve a Savior who ultimately will eliminate all suffering. And so we should be against suffering. But we also sometimes need to be reminded that, that, that sometimes God works sanctification through suffering in, in ways where the suffering doesn't even go away or necessarily get turned down in this life. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Ken Keithley. And in today's episode, Dr. Quinn and I will talk with Dr. Jacob Schatzer about transhumanism, about whether or not it's wise or even ethical to improve your body uh, by means of technology. And after that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, uh, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines like news, sports, pop culture, or business, all from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, uh, we're going to talk about Halloween. Halloween is coming up in a few days. So how should Christians deal with this holiday? Should they avoid it, navigate it? or something else altogether. Well, we're glad to have with us today our own Dr. George Robinson. He's professor of global disciple making and holds the Bailey Smith Chair of Evangelism. George, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, first, let me um, ask you this. How do you navigate Halloween in your particular unique setting? Yeah, that's a a great question, Ken. You know, uh, I moved here 15 and a half years ago, and when I was moving to the town of Wake Forest, our real estate agent in the particular neighborhood we were moving into told us to start preparing for Halloween in uh, midsummer. Uh, to which I was like, like, "What what are you talking about? They said, just trust us. You need to get ready. And so we bought a little bit of extra candy building up to Halloween. And then on Halloween night, about 6.30 p.m., I was completely out of candy and befuddled, turned my lights off, shut my door, and watched myriads of people walking past my house thinking, I teach evangelism, and people are going house to house through my neighborhood. It's the one night of the year that people who are far from God are actually out in my neighborhood and want to have interaction, and I've so missed you, out your, on your neighborhood is your neighborhood is unique. Uh, in it that, is yeah. uh, in that that you're on North Main, which is uh, Halloween central for the town of Wake Forest, in a way that most subdivisions aren't. So it gives sure. you a very special. Sure. So so what do you do? How how do you handle it now? So the next year, yeah, that's a great question. The next year, I was prepared, and I realized that you know Halloween typically is about the children, which is great um, opportunity to uh, to be present and to give good candy to kids. Um, but I wanted to uh, meet my neighbors, meet the adults as well. So we set up two different tables in our driveway. We have 
uh, one place where we're giving candy to the kids. And then on the other side of the driveway, we've got coffee and hot chocolate for the adults only. And that gives me an opportunity just briefly to show hospitality uh, to my neighbors, to encourage them in some way. And honestly, Ken, one of the things that I'm aiming for is to be a contrast a little bit to perhaps the way some of my other neighbors are approaching the holiday where they're celebrating the the evil and, you know, witches yeah. and skeletons and all of those things. We're not that, you know, we've got mums on our front porch and pumpkins, but uh, we're, we're trying to shine the light and love of Christ as best we can in a very short amount of time. Yeah, really what you're talking about um, has so many real world applications for Christians in our present age, that you think right. of all the various situations where you're invited to events, are your something at work, are something a family gathering, and many of the things about it do not honor the Lord. And and in right. some ways, you're 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 in a situation in which you may be the only believer there. What's some of the principles? I mean, the goal here is to maintain our testimony for Christ for the purpose of reaching people. So how do you how do you think well about these things? Yeah, you know, honestly, it kind of made me initially think back to uh, Niebuhr's book on Christ and culture uh, from decades ago. And an application of that is there are really three ways you can approach it. You can avoid Halloween altogether and, you know, be the the uh, the Grinch of Halloween, and there are some who will do that. And, you know, if that's your conviction, then okay. But I don't necessarily think that you're accomplishing what you desire to accomplish when you avoid the holiday altogether. The other way of approaching it is to provide some sort of alternative. This is what most churches tend to do. Uh, they'll have a fall festival, which we all know falls during Halloween, right? right? So you are riding the rhythm of this cultural holiday that occurs every year, but you're trying to provide some sort of wholesome alternative. And the reality is those are not bad things, but most of the people who are coming to your fall festival do that as the appetizer. Um, that's their charcuterie board. And then they're moving on to the main course uh, to go trick-or-treating elsewhere. So at least you're being present with an alternative festival or trunk-or-treat or something like that. You know, for me, we've chosen to embrace the neighborhood that we live in. And whether your neighborhood has a thousand people uh, per night that comes by your house, which is what we average, um, oh my goodness. or whether it has 25 people that come by, the very fact that our culture is such that we've shifted from the front porch to fenced-in backyards begs the question of Christians, are you going to be present in your community? Do the people in your community know that you care for your neighborhood? And so even if it's a small uh, number of people that are coming by your house, the very fact that you're present, that you're ready, and that you are hospitable and kind and welcoming can create opportunities, perhaps not necessarily on that night. I have had opportunities to pray with people, to encourage people, to share the gospel with people on that night over the, the years. But most of the people who come by my house, um, it literally is them looking and saying, wow, you're doing this differently. This is interesting. What's going on with that? 
And so that gives me additional, I've run into people at the coffee shop all the time say, hey, you're the one that gives the free coffee away to adults on Halloween. I love your house. And that, you know, they've just started a conversation with me that now I can build off of. That's excellent. Uh, Good words of advice. Uh, Thank you so much, George. I appreciate the opportunity. Here at Southeastern, we know that our global Great Commission impact is only made possible by faithful ministry partners and supporters like you who share our vision for equipping students to make disciples through the local church and around the world. On Giving Tuesday, November 28th, we invite you to join us by giving to support our Great Commission efforts. To give now or to learn more about how your giving can have an eternal Great Commission impact, visit sebts.edu give. If you could improve your body with technology, would you or should you? These are good questions, hard questions, especially in our current day and time. And today to discuss these questions on our podcast is a friend of Southeastern and also a personal friend, uh, Dr. Jacob Schatzer. Jacob is the Associate Professor of Theological Studies and Associate Provost and Dean of Instruction at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, also where he and I both graduated from our undergraduates. He also serves as the Executive Director of Bible Mesh, which he may want to talk more about later on, but is the author of Transhumanism and the Image of God, Today's Technology and the Future of Christian Discipleship. So, Dr. Schatzer, thank you for joining us today to talk especially about this weird word, transhumanism. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, now, 2029 is coming up, and that's when Ray Kurzweil says that the singularity will happen. So what is transhumanism, and what do transhumanists mean when they talk about the singularity? Yeah, these are such interesting but sometimes difficult conversations because of all these strange terms. So uh, the singularity is meant to refer to this uh, hypothetical point where technology will become so advanced that it just uh, shoots beyond us. It doesn't just move a little bit slowly beyond us, but, but exponentially, and then we're suddenly... Um, uh, just left behind. And so uh, I'm not sure if, or if Kurzweil would stick with 2029 still. I'm not, I'm not sure. But um, Well, he doesn't plan on dying. Exactly. Yeah. So there's, there's some uh, that still think that that point is out there, which connects into this uh, notion of transhumanism, which in, in short is the idea that, that as humans, we have, have come to be what we are evolutionarily. So it comes from an evolutionary standpoint. And, and the idea is, in the past, we've not been able to control our evolution, but now, because of technology, because of pharmaceuticals, because of advanced medicine, we can. Uh, so let's let's decide what we're going to be. Let's experiment. Let's try. Let's become something different. Overcome human limitation. Well, if I understand Kurzweil correctly, uh, his point on the singularity, as you say, where technology just takes off uh, exponentially, that unless we as humans integrate with that technology, we will be left in the dust. And so therefore, transhumanism is a necessity. So talk to us, what is transhumanism? Yeah, so, so transhumanism uh, as a movement represents a wide range of, of different folks who don't always agree with one another, uh, but all of whom uh, basically work with this idea that we we can and should and must move beyond current human limitations, whether that's to overcome 
current forms of suffering or difficulty or inconvenience, or whether that's to combine with technology in some sort of unique way to handle this uh, rapidly approaching singularity. So, Jacob, what got you interested in this conversation in the first place? Yeah, so I've not always been quick to adopt technology kind of person. I didn't have a smartphone until... Uh, I, I don't. I don't know. It might have been early 2020. It's you know what's funny about the, that, the though, is that things. when yeah. you and I were taking classes together in undergraduate, you were the first person that I ever noticed that brought their laptop into the classroom. Uh, and see, yeah, these, these are all interesting and integrated questions <laughs> we could go all all over with. So, I guess it would probably be more fair to say there there are some aspects of technology that I've been excited to. Uh, to use and others that that for different reasons I've been been less interested in, and and partly I think as I've I've studied the Bible and theology and tried to think about what it means to be human, I've just recognized that there's an interesting connection between humans and our tools, mm. a connection that in in some ways seems very simple, but in other ways is really really complex, and uh, the ways that we end up connecting with our tools and ways and the way that those connections. Uh, change us sometimes in subtle ways. So how is um, transhumanism different than from, say, like traditional medicine? Like, I'm at the age now where things like knee replacement and hip replacement, these seem like good ideas. Mm -hmm. How's transhumanism different? Yeah, so so typically traditional medicine has pursued uh, what what many scholars refer to uh, as simply therapeutic helps. Taking someone who has uh, a difficulty or a disability of some sort that that puts them below the human norm, whether that's with knee function or whatever else, and providing uh, either a treatment or or maybe a technological innovation that brings them back to what would be considered within the range of normal human functioning. So, so that would be alleviating the human condition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you and I, I mean, they they all can't see this on the podcast, but you and I are both wearing glasses. Right. But, but my glasses uh, help me have what would be seen as normal human vision. They're not uh, smart glasses. They're not. Uh, binoculars. I can't zoom in or anything like that with them. But that that typically is where the line is between traditional medicine and and transhumanism. The problem is that line can be kind of hard to find sometimes. Mm. What if we can give knee replacements that are actually more durable and uh, more powerful and and, and things like that than a normal human knee? Well, that's when we start to get into uh, transhumanism, moving the human beyond what has typically been the norm. I have an an example in mind and and Tell me what you think of this. Of course, students always have to struggle with exams. Mm -hmm. But there are certain uh, medications that are for hyperactivity and whatnot, but taken during test time. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to help them study better. Memory retention is better. Mm -hmm. Is that transhumanist? Yeah, I, I think so, so. Again, these boundaries are a little porous. They're not not hard and fast. Mm-hmm. Often, when we think of transhumanism, people think of of technology and uploading a brain into the computer, into the cloud, or something way out there like that. But really, the values and the approach of, of transhumanism connects in with with pharmaceuticals uh, and things like that as well. So, so right that question right there is right on the line of where where is therapy and where is enhancement. Um, and we've been exploring these questions. You know, there's a movie, I think, called Limitless or something like mm-hmm. that, that that revolves around that that very thing. And so, and that also shows, as you mentioned, these are medications that uh, for for some, they're therapeutic. Uh, same pill for an other person, 
might actually be enhancement. And so uh, it, it raises that very question. So I, I don't know that uh, there's, a, there's an easy uh, yes or no on, on that one, um, but I do think that those are, that's the places where, as, as Christians, we're going to run up against these questions, not with, hey, today would you like to put your brain into the cloud? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be, hey, well, what about this small change? Um, and so it really gets back to what, what does it mean to be human? In, in particular, what do things like uh, suffering and what do things like struggle, uh, how do those impact the way that we see ourselves and the way that we're formed uh, physically, morally, spiritually, intellectually? So, Jacob, in terms of how we think about this as Christians, we were talking last night that pretty quickly uh, after you wrote, after you published your book, that there was a new movement of Christian transhumanists mm-hmm. that uh, sort of gathered themselves, have even kind of written their own statement of faith, or at least at least what they're after with respect to and what they believe about this sort of integration between Christian faith and this approach to transhumanism. So a couple of questions here, take them as you like, but one, what is this movement after? What is it, what is it really wanting? What's the appetite? And then secondly, how should Christians think about this? And I want to caveat that a little bit with a lot of times when cultural phenomenon hit us, a, a lot of times it's pretty straightforward black and white. I mean, oftentimes we can sort of dissect or push those things in the category of good, bad, right, wrong, not, you know, it's pretty straightforward oftentimes. This is one of those that's a lot trickier to, to decide because the second that this whole category of transhumanism is defined for us, just as Dr. Keithley was doing a second ago, we, we kind of look back and go, well, we've kind of been doing some of this, haven't we? So what is it that's new and what should we be afraid of? What should we yeah. not be afraid of? How do we begin to sort of situate the categories? Yeah, so this, this is a big question. I think, uh, so in the, the book I published in 2019, I wrote in the years prior to that, and there, you know, Christian transhumanists existed at that point, but they, there wasn't really much of a movement to it. It was, it was more fringe. But immediately, you know, as the book is published, one of the gaps in the book is that I didn't treat the Christian transhumanists uh, very directly. And I've tried to do that that more and try to understand them better. And I think a, a simple version of it would be that, uh, you know, we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on mm-hmm. earth as it is yeah. in heaven. For Christian transhumanists, the very sorts of technological advances, the pharmaceutical advances, all of these sorts of things, they see as a means by which Christ may graciously be bringing in elements of his kingdom now. And so the idea for them is uh, we should be fully on board with all of these things that overcome human suffering, that, that alleviate problems, that, that radically extend human life and, and things like that. And they think that transhumanism as a movement can be a handmaiden to that. Mm. I'm hesitant with that for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that transhumanism and its philosophical foundations is not just uh, philosophically agnostic or, or atheist. It is hostile to the divine. So I think that the notion that as Christians we can just partner with these transhumanists is short-sighted uh, and, and maybe a little too optimistic. Yeah, I think that, uh, to your point, that it's a very Christian notion to attempt to alleviate suffering. Mm-hmm. And if there are gene therapies that can deal with diseases, we as Christians can not only uh, accept that but affirm that very strongly. Mm-hmm. There's a world of difference, though, be- between that and trying to actually be more human than human or actually be some type of uber-human. Yep in a way that tries, as you say, avoid some of the things that are the human condition for today. Uh, Moving on to some of the technologies that we see today, and I'm thinking now particularly everybody's paying attention to AI, 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, I, I think it, a lot of us have at least been to ChatGPT's website and tinkered with it. So what would be your reply to those who wonder if there's the possibility that something like ChatGPT becomes self-aware and therefore we have to ask, is this a person? Yeah, this is a, a great question. I want to be careful how I, I answer it so that I don't anger Chat GPT. You may be listening. It is recording your voice right uh, now. Yeah. So, so I think partly what we have to do is understand a little bit about what technologies like Chat GPT are doing. And in and, and a, a really boiled down way, Chat GPT is a pattern recognition algorithm. It's really good at predicting the right way to put words together because it is able to uh, analyze a vast store of human words and, and responses. And so when, when we query chat GPT, it is, is taking apart that question uh, and then it is, it is mimicking human thought by finding ways to put words together. It, it, it knows the best way to figure out what should the next word in this sequence be. Um, simplifying a bit, but that's what it's doing. It's mimicking a vast store of human information. The interesting thing about that is this question of uh, can machines become conscious is, of course, a debate that exists within that large amount of data that ChatGPT has trained itself on. So it has learned to ask and answer that question. Yeah, if you ask it. Maybe in ways, exactly. If you ask, it'll say sure. (laughs) Exactly. And so I, I think at some level, uh, one thing about being human is we, we constantly find ourselves places or we see things that, that we find our reflection in interesting places, right? You know, like there are the weird uh, articles you see online, like somebody is like, hey, look at this grilled cheese. It's got my picture on it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know how this happened. It's a miracle. We, we just, you know, we see things. And I think that uh, as remarkable as ChatGPT is and as powerful of a tool as it is at recognizing patterns and, and predicting patterns, uh, we have to recognize that that a lot of what we see there that we want to say, oh, that looks like consciousness or, oh, that looks like a, a person. When we really analyze it, it it's not. And, and actually, it's, it's our personhood, our yearning for the other that is actually causing us to identify or, or hope to identify some of that uh, in artificial intelligence. Yeah, I think there's a world of difference between something that's living and something that's lifelike. Mm, mm. Um, and w- w- to your point, I think that um, there is this desire to find the other, even when it's not there. So in trying to help pastors think well about this, I think that there's, I'd like to break up this question to two parts, yeah. practical and uh, theoretical. With the advancements that we're, we're seeing in uh, technology and AI, on a practical level, uh, how can pastors be thinking well about ministering to people whose jobs and their work might be impacted mm-hmm. by these advances? I mean, I just yeah. listened to Bill Gates this week talking about that we he expects the AI revolution to be as big or bigger than the invention of the personal computer mm-hmm. and the internet. That's a big statement. Yeah. Yep. So that's on a practical level. Mm-hmm. And then the second part is, okay, thinking about this theologically, the yeah. bigger picture that you've been addressing. Yeah. So how can we help our pastors? That's a two-parter. Yeah. Take yeah. as long as you want on either one. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to hit, hit both of those. So I think... Uh, on the one hand, on a practical ministry level, I think as, as, as Christian leaders, we need to help people notice the trade-offs that are happening with the advances of technology. Like much of our societal ethos is if it's new, it's better. 
Uh, and sometimes it is. But what we have to help our people see is that it's not always. Or, or sometimes it is the right decision to, to use that technology, but it actually also then weakens this other aspect of our community. So, so how do we think about that and how do we address that? And so I think just getting people to think in terms of trade-offs when it comes to new technology is really, really important. As far as how do we prepare to respond to the AI revolution, um, I, I think in, in some ways – we have to be careful in the, in, in the last 10 or 15 years, I think as a, as a church, we've done an excellent job of, of helping people better understand the way that their work uh, fits into God's plan for them and has dignity and is good, whether that's not just the work of ministry, but just all work, right? All good work, uh, which is something we needed to do. And now we are going to see some of these men and women who have developed that deep sense of God calling them to that work start losing their jobs. And so how do we as Christian communities prepare to, to not only help them meet the needs of their families that they will have, but, but to wrestle with the identity issues that we've actually just helped them kind of develop and connect theologically to their faith? What do they do now uh, when that work is, is taken from them? Yeah, I, I was talking to a fellow who runs a software crew, mm. and he's, I think they call him a software architect. Yeah. So they are using uh, AI constantly now. And he's saying that a software program that used to take a week for a program or a programming team to do, it can now be done sometimes in the matter of minutes. Mm-hmm. Or a program that is elaborate and huge, and it used to take somebody days to find where the bug is, now they can do it. I mean, the AI finds it almost instantly. Mm-hmm. So in terms of productivity and, and getting work done, this is a wonderful thing. The downside is, is that this means there's two or three guys that would have been hired mm-hmm. that now is not being hired. And yeah. so those are the kinds of things I think we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So now let's move to the, to the theological side about transhumanism yeah. as, a, as an ism. Yeah, yeah. I'm almost automatically nervous about every ism except baptism. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so whenever you talk about an ism, mm-hmm. walk us through here. How should we be thinking well as Christians about this? Yeah, I think the, the key thing with, with transhumanism, I'll, I'll, I'll go with two. Can't always be simplified to that. There are certainly more than two. Uh, but one is I think that transhumanism gives us an opportunity as a church to re-engage these questions of what is the meaning of suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, because on the, on the one hand, we, we do as Christians seek to eliminate suffering because we serve a Savior who ultimately will eliminate all suffering. And so we should be against suffering. But we also sometimes need to be reminded that, that, that sometimes God works sanctification through suffering in, in ways where the suffering doesn't even go away or necessarily get turned down in this life. And I think watching for both of those is important. I think one of the dangers of of transhumanism is that it it sells this lie that it would be good for us to just jump quickly beyond anything that's suffering. And I'm just Mm -hmm. not convinced that that that's the case. I think that's such a key point, Jacob, because we do, we we have to reflect on the person of Christ in this whole thing. I mean, he is the ultimate human being. And we have to recognize and be reminded of that we are sanctified through suffering. And that doesn't mean that we should be sadist and pursuing suffering or anything like that. But at the same time, that the good news of the gospel is that our God has taken suffering and actually given us hope, not only through suffering, but even through death. Mm -hmm. Death becomes the doorway to life. 
And so any of these sort of technological promises that inoculate us entirely against suffering or that transcend death ultimately, uh, there's something about those things that while everything in us might want those things, we also have to lean back into the gospel that says, no, that our God has actually given us life through death. So maybe we should think a little more carefully before we just adopt the next new thing, yeah. as you were saying earlier. And I think that a, a deeper question related to that as well is, is the question that you know, is being asked throughout the, the Bible in poetic ways, where does my hope come from? Hmm. And, uh, and as Christians, we know what we're supposed to say. But, but when we lean towards the solutions that transhumanism proposes, we begin to answer, my hope comes not from the hills or from the mountains, but from the valley, from Silicon Valley. Mm. Uh, <laughs> that's not true. Our, yeah. our hope comes from the Lord. And, and even as we pray, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and we work for that to happen in God's grace working through us, we still remember that Scripture ends with certainty, but still with the, the, the vocative hope, oh, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Mm-hmm. And so I think as Christians, we, we have to exist in that posture between working for the advance of God's kingdom as he's called us to, while at the same time calling out, come, Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's good. Thank you, Jacob, for joining us today. Yeah. And now it's time for our listener favorite. I think that's right, Nathaniel. Is it a listener favorite still? On my bookshelf, where Southeastern friends, staff, faculty, and today a friend and scholar in residence with us at the Center for Faith and Culture, Dr. Jacob Schatzer is here. Uh, Dr. Schatzer, tell us what's on your bookshelf. Yeah, thanks. So uh, I'm, I'm currently slowly making my way through a book that was recommended to me by a, a good friend, um, Scott Hewlin, who directs our honors community at, at Union University. Uh, it is, it's by uh, Anton Barba Kay, and the, the, uh, the book is called A Web of Our Own Making. A web of our own making, and uh, it's not from a, a theological perspective. It's more from a, a philosophical and sociological perspective. But it's wrestling with these questions of how how our online practices are shaping our lives in ways we don't even notice. Uh, and, and this it's it's an interesting book to me because it's it's similar to the the thesis that I, I pursued in in my book Transhumanism in the Image of God, uh, but but not from a theological or, or, or Christian perspective. Just looking at the really complex societal changes that are happening very very quickly, uh, in, in ways that we often don't notice, or if we do notice, we feel like we have no power to resist or, or change or, or do anything about. So I've only gotten a little ways into it. I don't know that he has any solutions. I mean, that's always the hope, right? But oftentimes these books just uh, kind of make you despair and then leave you sitting there. And so I don't want to get my hopes up, but it, it's certainly a, a deep and engaging treatment of some of those issues. Tell us the, the name and the author again. Yeah, Anton Barba K. So it's B-A-R-B-A dash K-A-Y. Uh, a web of our own making. Fantastic. You see, you get caught in webs, and it's not a good thing. So I, it, it's, <laughs> it's preparing uh, for, for the tone of the book, even in the title. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, if you will give us a five-star rating on whatever platform that you listen to podcast. Five. Thank you again. Five. Five, five stars. Yes. That's right. Give us five-star rating. It's very helpful for us, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Mm-hmm.